Hello and welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today we're talking criticism and Harry Maguire, whilst also trying to come up with new ways to compliment Jude Bellingham. We'll also be talking about which Manchester City midfielder could be a cert for the England setup. Hint, it's not Phil Foden. We've also got to be talking about Paul Pogba, of course. We'll also be discussing Brighton and Tony Bloom. But first, gentlemen, I've got a joke for you. What happens when an Englishman, an Irishman, a Scotsman walk into a podcast studio? You get audio gold. That's <laughs> one. That oh, there one. you go. And it's all downhill from here. Yeah, because today, <laughs> Martin Samuel, Gregor Robertson, and Tony Cascarino join me, Tom Clark, on today's show. Hey, that was that went wet better than uh, I thought. Yeah, <laughs> it did, yeah. You it actually did. laughed. Yeah, yeah just, I did. I, 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 did. Thought it yeah. I was yeah. laughing because it wasn't yeah, that funny. Laughing, <laughs> laughing through tears, really. But. Listen, well, we're starting with the more serious matters. That's the end of the jokes because we move on to Scotland one, Gregor. I'm sorry, England three. We won't dwell on it too much, um, but we're going to start with Gareth Southgate's passionate defence of Harry Maguire and saying that criticism of his centre-back is a joke and he's never known anything like it. Martin, have you ever known anything like it? Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> it, I think most of the criticism of Harry Maguire has been absolutely about football and, and the fact he's not in the Manchester mm. United team, the fact he's not playing. Um, I know he's become a bit of a punchline in terms of um, sort of accidents on the field or, or whatever, little minor little calamities or whatever when he's been playing for Manchester United. Um, but that can happen. I mean, Kaz wrote a, a very good piece this morning uh, about Mick McCarthy. Mm. And, I, I, you know, Mick's one of my favourite footballers. He really is. And one of the reasons why I was, I was covering uh, Manchester City when Mick was their centre-half. And he, he had this particular run of matches. I, I, I can't remember it exactly. I will check it. But it's like, I think he I think he got sent off, gave away a penalty, two own goals. I mean, it was just this, it was this run of just absolute calamities. And after, the, after about the fourth game in succession where this had happened, I think he gave away both penalties and they drew two all at home or he... he or... or, or he scored two own goals, I think, or something, and he came out, and I was waiting for him, and I knew Mick, and so I said, and he didn't duck it, he didn't like run no. away like Harry Maguire, who, who spoke to everyone last uh, on on Tuesday night after the Scotland game, and he and he stood there, I went, what do you make of that, Mick? And he looked at me, he went, well. He said, anyone can have a bad career. And I thought, <laughs> <laughs> what a great way. I mean, it was just just fantastic. A fantastic fellow, Mick. And, and no surprise, he made a very good manager. Yeah. And look, I don't think the criticism... Gareth seems very upset about the criticism aimed, aimed at Harry, Harry Maguire. I think almost all of it has been to do with his football, with his performances. Whether you think that's fair or not, that's an, that's another matter. Mm. Whether you think, you know, people are right or people are wrong. But I don't think people are seeking him out and and, 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 and saying unreasonable things uh, about him. He can't get in the Manchester United team at the moment. He turned down the opportunity to go to West Ham. People talk about that sort of stuff. I think it's valid criticism. Yeah, but we'll come back to Maguire just to give some context then to that Mick McCarthy little yeah. anecdote. And you <laughs> teed him up perfectly. Tony, your column on the website this morning, which we discussed yesterday, yeah. just give uh, listeners and, and readers hopefully an idea of how your columns normally work. You trot into the office, nice, <laughs> nice and cheery, and go, Tom, I've got another good story for you. <laughs> and you sit down and we write it out. But you, but you're, as Martin said, it's about Mick McCarthy and his time 
time at Ireland. Yeah. You saw parallels between the situation there and with Maguire, yeah. that's right. And it? also, as Martin was talking about, um, Mick's time at Man City, I mean, I knew when Mick was there and having that difficult time at club mm. level as well. Sometimes club levels also snowballs into international yeah. football. Yes. And, I, and I do think, just on Maguire first, that sort of club football has had a bigger effect than how he's played for England because mm. he has played okay. Yes, he, you know, it's, I always find it hard to, to use the words okay because okay is not a standard with England and it's not a standard with big clubs, mm. Man United certainly. Um, but yeah, um, the, the strange thing is as soon as I thought of it, when I was seeing the Maguire stuff, I kept thinking Mick McCarthy, Captain Ireland, mm. Jack trusted him implicitly. He had absolute mm. 100% backing of, of Mick McCarthy. Jack. In some ways, he would have been his number one choice because although he had Paul McGrath, he could use in midfield, he could have Kevin Moran, David O'Leary found himself out of the team. Um, I could have told you on the, a story off the back of that, but um, yeah. I'm not sure David O'Leary would be happy about it. <laughs> but um, the, the thing that struck me was that Mick never, as Martin said, ducked anything. And he did get off one particular pundit in Eamon Dunphy. And Eamon Dunphy is as brutal as any pundit that I've ever seen. If you take his early days in RTE in, in, with Ireland, he went literally double-footed on everybody and sometimes took it even personally. And when he, you know, he said on air about, you know, he's quicker than McCarthy, and then one day he turns up at the training down, Mick McCarthy's like, right, we're having a race. So he turned so turned up as a training ground. So this yeah. would be the equivalent of say Gary Lineker saying on match of the day, um, I could still score more goals than Harry Kane, and then turning up at England training and having a penalty shootout with him. Oh, well, well, yeah, it was some sort. I mean, they've ended up having a race. And the funniest <laughs> thing is that Mick only just about won it. Yeah. <laughs> but he won it. But he, he, won won it. it. he won it. But he tried to give him an elbow as well as the race was going on. But it was quite feisty <laughs> before they even had a race because it was like as it was. I tell you what, it reminded me of it was like um. You know the school fight? They're having a fight mm. up the field at the back of the yeah, after yeah, school. Yeah, 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 and everyone gathers. And, and then you sort of, everyone gathers around and then you <laughs> see Eamon turn up, who has never been shy, Eamon Dunphy, in any shape or form. And um, Mick's full on him and wants it and has the race. Um, and I know they've done stuff together in the last couple of years, Mick and Eamon, um, on podcasts and mm. on other sort of um, media setups. Um, it, yeah, and I found it, I found it, Intriguing how Mick handled his career because never once did Mick let Ireland down. And you, in your piece, and yesterday you were talking to me about how you think that could potentially give Harry Maguire a little bit of hope and how you felt that with Ireland you found that because McCarthy never ducked it, never ducked a question to the journalist, yep. he never ducked a performance, he never ducked the responsibility. There's similarities there, Tom. The fans then ended up going, do you know what? Even if he's rubbish, I respect this guy. Well, I don't know, Tom. I mean, I don't know if any of the boys were at the game, but you do get the sense the England away fans seem to be way more on Maguire. Yeah. Than, yeah, yeah but that's, that's a change. He was yeah. booed heavily at Wembley not so long yeah. ago. That's what so I mean. I wonder whether this is... You know, it's going so ferocious now that the yeah, fans I, I, will I just, come... I kind of disagree. I think this is something different because it's... You know, we, we see, we've seen players get stick, but from their own kind of international fans... Uh, look, Scotland fans kind of saw a weakness and and went for it and gave them kind of ironic mm-hmm. cheers every time we got on the ball. We've seen that kind of stuff before, but it for me it's like it's something about his personality. It's like could you envisage old you know, centre halves, England centre halves of the past, mm-hmm. like I don't know, John Terry or a Rio Ferdinand or anything, being kind of pilloried like this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's not. He's although he's spoken about as a leader, he's quite softly spoken. He's quite kind of mm-hmm. measured, mm-hmm. and 
Mm. And yeah, he's a, he's a big presence on the pitch, but you, yeah, but you feel, like, okay, you feel like you want him to get a bit angry about it, and you're not seeing yeah, that. Just so. very quick, I think I'm going to tee you up for what you're about to say, which is in Tony's piece, he talked about McCarthy and being at Barnsley and being yeah. a good lad from Barnsley, and then going he's to a big Manchester personality. City. Yeah, but Maguire as well. Tony was saying, you know, doesn't have pace, and in the modern mm. game, that maybe leaves you a little bit open. Mm. You know, the nickname Slabhead. Slabhead was exactly. a great joke at 2018, wasn't it? Yeah. We all yeah. love Slabhead. Exactly. But actually, Slabhead now sounds, you sound like an idiot, don't you? If you nickname yeah. Slabhead, you're like, oh, mm. bloody Slabhead's here again. Well, Jamie yeah. Vardy yeah. took the mick out of him. That was, yeah. He saw he saw someone that you could take the mick out of. Yeah. Mm. And I think, I think like, football and social media is not kind anyway, no. but that's a big part of this. But even fans inside a stadium are, are seeing a weakness and they're trying to exploit it. And so it's something about seeing someone who they feel they can take the mick out of and he's not really going to, there's not been any response. Like, So you don't think then the kind of British almost humour, if you like, around you know these kind of topics where we end up then loving an underdog, you don't think that might become part of the Maguire I think it narrative? could, I think we could be there now, yeah, because it's gone so far. But um, I, I personally would like to see a bit more anger out of, out of Harry Maguire. Anger in a press conference or anger on the pitch or both? Both. He comes out and says, "No, I'm, I know I can take it. I'm big enough to take it. But why not say that? You know, this is out of order." Martin, I, I don't. You know, there there are great triumphs over uh, adversity uh, from fellas in a centre half position. I'm thinking of a, uh, a one yeah. bloke who got called Donkey uh, throughout his teenage years, who ended up one of the greatest captains that Arsenal has ever had, and one of the most successful captains Arsenal has ever had. And he started off being called Donkey. Because Tony Adams was, you know, made a few mistakes as a as a raw centre half, and and you know, didn't have, perhaps have the pace that people thought a centre half should have. Oh, he can't pass the ball, which was wrong, by the way. He was a much better passer of the ball than because actually, as I can't remember who made the observation about Tony, that actually if you looked at Tony passing the ball out the back, you could see the absolute concentration he, he, he put into it, a bit like John Terry, that of making sure it got to where it, it wanted, whereas Rio Ferdinand, so he was a much better technical player, was sometimes a little bit easy about... A bit more of a stroller. A bit, a bit more yeah. of a stroller because he, he had such natural ability that mm. he wasn't focused all the time on making sure the pass got where it, where it should get. Whereas Tony worked that little bit harder at it, but starts off being called Donkey mm. and ends up captain of his country, captain of his club. Great footballer. What, com- what comes down to is, is confidence and his, his has been shattered. We can see yeah. it, and everyone else sees that. That's what I'm. That's what mm. I'm kind of. That's at the heart of this. It's like when you see someone who's so low, uh, it's it's they're easy to kind of kick when they're on the ground. Yeah, Tony, you talked again in the piece about your time at Celtic, and you know you said um, you know the worst kind of fan was the one that would just be on you because that was the narrative around you at the yeah. time. I mm. Cascarino's useless, and he wouldn't have even watch the game. They would have no mm. idea what you'd mm. actually done. Well, I've had that line thrown to me, yeah. Tom. How I've had diff- that. I didn't difficult- watch the game yesterday, but I heard you were crap. Yeah, how difficult is that? <laughs> <laughs> how difficult is that to yeah, come back to? Yeah, I was. To? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm going to agree. I did play crap at yeah. Celtic, and I was yeah. rubbish. And I got sick at two clubs uh, in my career. I played for seven, well, eight, but one of them I only played one game. I retired. I, I got sick at Celtic, deservedly so. I was never in the right condition when I joined Celtic, and I had a number of knee issues. And at Chelsea, at the very start, I won the Chelsea fans over by mm. the end. I got so many people come up to me when they when I was going to be let go by Glenn Hoddle. They actually were like, "We'd love you to have stayed." Mm. You know, you you proved us all wrong. Which 
I was if you said to me one of my proudest things I ever did in my career, I'd say turning a career around. Yeah. Because I was on what Gregory's rightly saying. I was shattered at Celtic. I came away from Celtic. In the end, it was a relief for me because the stick was relentless. And I'm not going to hide from it. I, I didn't play well. Mm. I probably played, you know, without doubt, in nine months, the worst football of my... And it was really weird because when I joined Gillingham, I didn't really have a downside. And then I went to Millwall and that all went well. And I went to Villa and it was okay. It wasn't bad. It was okay. I, I, again, I really loved it at Villa. But when I got to Celtic, it was the first time I experienced a hard time. Mm-hmm. So it was alien a bit to me, and I didn't quite know how to handle it. Yeah, but you could say the same for Maguire, you know, from Hull he's never to been Leicester, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then gets the big move, yeah, brilliant in a World Cup and for all England, upwards, all upwards. Then to Manchester United, oh my God, I've made it. But yeah. so then you know, you then talk about moving. Martin obviously was linked with a move to West Ham in the summer, Harry mm-hmm. Maguire. Gregor, you've talked a lot about club confidence. Do you think that's this is a big part of it as well? He, he said in his comments. I decided to stay at Manchester United, fight for my place, I'll always do that, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. But do we think that's a part of turning his career around, that maybe he does need to need that move? Look, I thought it would be a great move uh, for West Ham at, at first when uh, Harry Maguire was, was linked with the club and I thought, well, that's good for him and it's good for West Ham. And, and by all accounts, David Moyes was saying, said to Harry... You'll be you'll you'll be our first choice centre half. It's you, and then you know two others or one other or, or, or whatever. And then by the end, when West Ham had actually started the season quite well, and um, they they you know won some games that people didn't necessarily expect them to win, and the centre halves looked Zuma relatively settled. Zuma looked yeah. good, and I know they got the uh, Aguirre got sent off, but yeah. but you know Ogbonna came in and looked good. Then you're looking at it and thinking, actually, the drama of trying to mm. rebuild Harry Maguire's career, do West Ham need that at the mm. moment? You know, it was it, it looked a very different move a couple of months before than it did at the end of the window when there was you're thinking, well, everyone's gonna be looking at him if he makes a mistake in the first game, the whole negative narrative starts again. West Ham are doing quite well at the moment. Do they actually do they yeah. need to, to put that into their situation? So I sort of changed my mind on that from West Ham's point of view. At the start of the transfer window, I, I thought it would be a great move for him. See, I there's, really did. there's one big thing here that the manager complicitly loves it, mm. quite clearly. You know, Southgate, you mean? Yeah, Southgate. Yeah, 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 sorry, Southgate. Sorry, Southgate sorry, yeah. And that's what Jack Charlton was with to Mick. Yeah. Yeah. That Mick knew that he's still going to be his number one choice if he has a bad game. Yeah. Now, I sort of looked at his England career and thought, well, he's made the Euros final and they lost on a penalty shootout. And he stepped you know, up and scored a penalty. And stepped up and mm-hmm. scored. And, you know, I mean, you, can't, you can't point fingers who why they didn't win. There's lots of... It's always complex why teams don't get over the line. Um, but I would say that if Southgate keeps that mindset with him and thinks, he's still my number one uh, until he's not. I mean, because Jack Holton used to use that phrase... He's my number one, and when I need him, I'll call him up. He used to all say, if I need him, I'll call him up, I'm going to play him. Mm. And that's what he did. Mm. So for two years, it'll be two years by the time the next year has come around, really, or 18 months. Yeah. Can he do that, like not playing much at club football level? And now there is there are the emergence of people like Lewis Dunk, uh, Levi Colwell, Gahey yeah. as well, who played yeah. well. So, well, it's always been a problem area for England. Now there are alternatives. I don't, I don't think it can last until next summer, him not playing football and still being... England's sent off. It's a difficult one because we were talking about this earlier, and it, it, it you know it, it might come into this with Calvin Phillips in a, in a minute. I know we're going to talk about those sort of issues, but 
the one thing I, I have always thought is that if it is all about whether he gets picked by his club, uh, if it's all about whether he's uh, fancied by Eric Ten Hag, well, then Gareth Southgate isn't the England manager, Eric Ten Hag is. Um, so you've got to have, as England manager, what I don't understand with Gareth sometimes is that he ties himself in knots talking about, or oh, you can't play Phil Foden down the middle because Pep Guardiola doesn't play him there. And then you think, well, hold on, you've just picked Calvin Phillips and Calvin Phillips doesn't play anywhere for Pep Guardiola. So yeah. it can't just be about what Pep Guardiola thinks. And with Maguire, it can't just be about Manchester United. It's got to be, in the end, Gareth Southgate looking at him and thinking, he's my guy. He doesn't let us down. Now, I agree, but for eighteen months. Oh, it's it's getting probably would get problem, to, problematic you know, at that point. We, you know, there is something I can see. I can see the problem, but there is something to be said what? for sticking with somebody, even though you know it's unpopular. It? That's what you're meant to do. That's what management's yeah, about. And back in your own judgment. What was Nobby Styles in 1966? Mm. He was a guy that I wasn't there, Tony. No, I know I'm going back a long <laughs> no, time. But I could give you, I could sure. give you uh, World Cup winners, and I could say. How did Givash get in the number nine in France? Yeah. yeah. A manager believed he was the right player for that yeah. team. Yeah. Whether he scored a goal, which he didn't, yeah. you know. <laughs> but some managers have an idea about a player and yeah, think, I need him. Yeah. I need him in my side. Yeah. It's a fascinating debate. I, mean, I want to bring it to a conclusion. Uh, just as we were heading up to the studio, uh, Zoe Maguire, Harry Maguire's mum, has put out a statement on social media. Uh, defending her son, but also saying, um, as a mum, seeing the level of negative and abusive comments which my son is receiving from some fans, pundits and the media is disgraceful and totally unacceptable. She goes on to say that she hopes it'll stop. I wanted to pick up on that point about the media because Harry Maguire's fronting up, so we're going to have to as well. I've mm -hmm. got two former footballers turned journalists and I've got a chief correspondent here as well. Mm -hmm. are, are we, the media, responsible for some of this kind of fevered narrative around Harry Maguire? Martin, I'll come to you. Well, if you if you don't want us to give an opinion about football, and that's all it's ever been, it's an opinion about football, um, well then, you know, I don't know what people want out of out of life, if you know what I mean. That, yeah. That's the whole point about football, is that it provokes debate, it provokes discussion. As long as the debate isn't personal, and I don't think the debate around Harry Maguire is personal no, at all it's certainly not in the media mm. I, I don't know what that you know because I've read for instance Danny Murphy saying he wouldn't pick Danny, uh, Harry Maguire but it's based on football reasons it's not based yeah. on a personal dislike of Harry Maguire um, nothing I read really is based on a mm. personal dislike of Harry Maguire or an antipathy towards the man it's just based on can you play, can you have a player in uh, <laughs> I'm laughing at John Bond. I'm thinking of John Bond. Right. He, when he was, oh, well, I was playing for Villa, mm. he literally done an article on me every other week, even if I played well. <laughs> and he would tell what I didn't do when I yeah. played well. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, some people have an agenda, which I never want to be. And yeah. what Martin said, look, if you said to Harry Maguire's mum, who who do you watch on telly? Who do you don't like when you're watching telly? Mm. We all watch things on telly and we yeah. go, nah, I don't particularly like them. Yeah. We're all guilty. It's growing arms and legs, this though, isn't it? I mean, yeah. we're talking about Harry Maguire's mum now. Like, <laughs> yeah, Harry Maguire will be thinking, what's this? Is the what heck? I mean. yeah, no, but, yeah. but that's, why, that's why I'm saying if he came out and went and was like, look, I'm going to prove you all wrong, you need to shut the hell up. Like, we yeah, said yeah, something yeah. pointed like that. Then yeah. people would go, you know, maybe be a little bit taken aback and it might have some impact. He doesn't need his mum coming out and saying something on social media. You need to see, but that's what I'm saying. It's not in, it's not part of his personality to do that. 
and that's part of the reason why he's been seen as a weakness sounds a bit mm. personal this year mum step up and definitely step up it's weird isn't it because you you know you've been objective and you're just saying it how you see it and i i'd hate to be in a world where i'm thinking oh i'm not going to say that because someone might be upset of you know an opinion i, on I think your performance i think though that social media and the yes. media get confused yes so what so we're seeing I. here is like is you know certain elements of the they are still sometimes media, you know, uh, corporations or whatever. They're not. They're not. They're you know, who have a certain try and get clicks and, and retweets and things like that from things that are a little bit, you know, close to the edge. But a lot of it is just social media. It's not the media. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Well, let's prove that we can be positive by moving on and talking about Jude Bellingham. See if we can come up with new things to say about how brilliant he is. Uh, Johnny Northcroft tried it in his piece uh, on the Times website talking from the point of view of a Scotland fan uh, being in the stadium, saying watching Jude Bellingham scattering our defenders like a lion charging through pigeons, which I thought was pretty poetic uh, and pretty true. Uh, He was majestic, wasn't he, Greg? Yeah, I read this thinking I I could have written this much less eloquently, but uh, I absolutely was nodding my head all the way through thinking, like, you, you just had to kind of shake your head when you saw him doing the things he was doing to Scotland's midfield and twisting and turning and I look there, I think there's a real kind of uh, contrast to make here between Maguire and Bellingham because watching him watching this guy this 20 year old who's just turned you know not long 20 and the self-confidence and the belief and the feeling that he belongs on every single stage as he's climbed from Birmingham to Borussia mm. Dortmund now to Real Madrid at the heart of their team now you know one of the first names on England's team sheet and the feeling that he all the time thinks yeah I should be here and it's, it seems unwavering there might come a point in his career but I can't see it he's just and it's it's quite it, you know it can sometimes sound trite to, to talk about his upbringing people have referenced it all the time but imagine bringing up a son who can who, who feels mm. like that sense of confidence without ever verging into cockiness or arrogance could be two sons as well by the way given exactly his yeah. it's extraordinary at Sunderland. it's extraordinary all the things he, he does with the ball like we know how talented he is but there are players who are as talented as Jude Bellingham what he has is something remarkable you know between his ears his mindset and his his confidence is is remarkable he just takes every game by the scruff of the neck and so as I said I've watched I've read Johnny's piece just agreeing he's like on a different level and England were on a different level and as you know as depressing as it was to watch like I'm not too downhearted by it because we've been on a great run we're in a unheard of position in our qualifying uh, yes we'd have loved to, to get one over in England mm. but you watch this and you saw the better team by a country mile win this game yeah on, on Bellingham Martin I wanted to ask about his positioning and his role in the England team mm. because it'll tear us up for the topic that is to follow in the paper today um, and online, we've got some graphics showing his role and the positions and the areas on the pitch that he occupies both mm. for England uh, and also for Real Madrid in a short space of time. And in, for Real, it's much more in a kind of conventional number 10, right through the middle, at the heart of everything. Mm. Whereas for England and Gareth Southgate in recent matches, it's kind of floating around on the left-hand side, verging onto the left wing, slight echoes of Paul Scholes being stuck out there mm. back in mm. the day. D- do you think it matters? Is he good enough that he can just roam around anywhere? Or should Southgate be going, bang, there you are, behind well, Harry Kane? In modern football, there doesn't seem to be such a thing as a free role anymore. So he, he's got to have a, a position. And you've got to remember his number was 22, wasn't it, at mm. Birmingham? We, and we know why it was 22. You know why it was 22? Tell me. Because they regarded him as an 8, a 10 oh, yeah. and a 4. 
and if add you add, that, uh, add yeah. it up, and it comes to twenty-two, and that and that's how, that's why they gave him that number, and they retired it. <laughs> When he left, everyone played, laughed. But no, everyone laughed, including me. I couldn't remember writing a couple of paragraphs about it. Taking the Mickey, he's only played one season. They retired his number, and now you're looking back, thinking, "God, they were smart." They? <laughs> and but he was an eight, a ten, and a four, and 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 that's what he is. I mean, you you you're sort of mindful. You you're not drawing like for like comparisons, but if you remember, say a player like Wood Hullet, who could play at centre half and he could play at centre forward and he could play at most of the positions. In between the two, basically, if you wanted yeah. him to, and that that is that is that is Jude Bellingham. But we've got to find a position for him, I think, because you can't have a situation where, in one game, you say, right, you're just behind uh, Harry Kane, and in the next game, you're asking him to sit in front of the back. He can do it, mm. but you'd like. You'd like to find a position where he causes the most damage, which is what he did against Scotland. He just caused them huge damage all the time. And the Real Madrid position, for me, does seem a very good one. You guys might disagree. Tony? I'd say it's unique. I don't know, there's very few players that are so versatile in their game. Mm. You know, both boys have talked about a player that's got everything. You know, you could... I mean, I was lucky enough to see Dennis... By the way... I'd never have Dennis Irwin doing shooting practice with him because he was unbelievable left foot and right foot and he'd, he'd make all centre-forwards look pretty poor <laughs> in front of goal, Dennis Irwin. Um, but yeah, I, I just just see a player that's unique in the way he is as well because, because when you think... Oh, look, there's one big thing. The weekend, I was on radio the weekend and we were talking about the game against Ukraine and I was sort of defending Gareth saying, look, well, hold it a minute. Bellingham's one of the best players in Europe at the, at the moment. I said Madison's rocked up at Tottenham and been brilliant from day mm, one. Mm. You know, you're looking at the, the England lineup and thinking Saka's a tremendous player, and and he has a bad he has a bad game. That's an awful game on Saturday against Ukraine for mm. from Bellingham. But the one thing he's done straight away is come back with an unbelievable performance against yeah. Scotland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a true great player. You know, we're not going to judge. I mean. If you're a professional footballer and you've played 700 games and you've had 50 bad games, you've had one hell of a career, mm. right? Yeah, <laughs> if you've sure. had 200 bad games, you haven't, right? Mm. Uh, do you know what I mean? You've yeah. probably moved around or not. And I, I just look at him and think, I don't know where I, I he's that good. I'm not even sure where I play him. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think, that's I, a weird, weird thing. I kind of agree. Like Martin's saying, in an ideal world, yeah, you have a settled position for him. But I think the thing, another thing I was nodding along. With uh, two with Johnny's piece was like, and it almost takes a a, Sc- a Scotland fan, you know, saying some of the things you guys get like start hyperventilating about are just ridiculous. Like yeah, yeah. you have you have an embarrassment of riches. You, mm-hmm. You've named some of the players there. Before that, I was talking about oh Foden. You know, why why, mm-hmm. why is he not playing in the middle? And now mm-hmm. suddenly we're saying, I think actually Jude Bellingham should be playing in the middle. Mm-hmm. It it, go, it will go on when you come to major tournaments. It will come down to who's in the best form, mm-hmm. and you will still have some really difficult decisions to make and it's about you know it's up to Southgate ultimately to get the best out of yeah, Bellingham exactly. to get the best out of Foden if he plays Grealish <laughs> Grealish then you know Rashford had a decent game we were talking not so long about Jaden Sancho and yeah. he's well, falling yeah. off a cliff you could go on yeah. there's so many players in your attack and, and you have the best one of the best number nines yeah. in the world well you're talking about the best attackers and Martin you mentioned it earlier a little bit deeper in the team Calvin Phillips in that defensive midfield role mm. we were talking about it before the show and you mentioned it earlier 
you you know back in the team alongside Declan Rice as those double anchors, uh, which got so much success for England. Of course, do you do you see a way back for him through England if you like? Yeah, I do because um, you know again it was another one of those players that you know I, I couldn't say you could put, uh, put him in an England squad uh, because he just doesn't play club football really at, at the moment, but. Gareth's attitude is when he plays for England, he doesn't let us down. And 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 now you look at this position with Jude Bellingham, and you think, right, okay, so what is what would make that work? And if it, if it's the double, it's, it's two guys sitting in front of that back four, whatever. Um, and a little bit of a a, a, a sort of linking role, um, with Bellingham and with that forward midfield, um, and Calvin Phillips looks perhaps the best of it at the moment, even though he's not playing for Manchester City. So you could have a situation where Phil Foden cannot get in the England team um, and Calvin Phillips can, mm. um, despite the fact that Calvin doesn't isn't picked by Pep Guardiola, you know, week in, week out, really. And it's it's and that's international football and that's what and that's why, you know, I've to just repeat what I'd said earlier, that's why it can't be about whether you're in, in your club team. It, it can't be. Because, some you know, Pep doesn't need that position, mm. doesn't need Calvin Phillips, mm. but Southgate does. It's probably quite interesting to, to look at is how many of City's subs, or because obviously Pep changed yeah. the team, are actually internationals that do get in their international team. Mm. It's quite a lot of them. Man City's you know, Morris played international for, yeah. football and yeah. found himself out of the team. Mm. No, there, and there was definitely others. Yeah. You know, Sterling didn't play for a while, but being in the international team. Mm. You know, it's it's the standard at City is nearly all their subs are internationals in their own right. Yeah. Who mm. play regularly. Well you think of Alvarez in the yeah. way you know, wins oh, the world Aguero wins the World Cup and Yeah. And you're thinking, he doesn't get in Man City's team. Aguero didn't get in Man City's team for though, to be fair. He has, <laughs> but if you know but he, he gets in there now. Yes, but true. when they won the World Cup, yeah, it wasn't Alvarez in the initial wasn't a man, it wasn't. Man City starter. Yeah. Um what's his name was um the boy from Inter Milan? Um, was in uh, up front for Argentina at the start of the tournament. Oh, yeah, Martinez. Martinez. Yeah. Martinez. Laporte, Laporte until recently, obviously left now, but he's he playing, for, playing for Spain. Yeah. yeah. And uh, off, so, uh, yeah, I couldn't get a game last year at all. Yeah. Well, hope for Harry Maguire then. Um, fascinating debate on all things England. We're going to move on and talk about Paul Pogba. Um, the France and Juventus midfielder has been provisionally suspended by the Italian anti-doping agency after testing positive for testosterone and could face a ban of up to four years if the result is confirmed. Obviously, can't go into great details about if, buts and maybes whilst mm. we're still waiting for the confirmation. But Martin, I just wanted to ask you about Paul Pogba, the career, because much like Harry Maguire, he's a player that has been a bit of an obsession for fans, for the media, uh, and for all of football, you would say. Mm. Does this kind of push uh, the narrative of his career down a bit of a tragic path? Potentially, of well, course. look, it, it depends on one whether the uh, whether the charge is upheld, and two, in what circumstances uh, we believe um, the ingestion ingestion of testosterone or whatever took place. It depends how much of a tragedy um, you see performance enhancing drugs um, as you know whether you see Ben Johnson as a tragic story or as someone who was trying to cheat and got caught. Mm. Um, so. In in that respect, it, it, it's just a it, it's it's a sad narrative, really. Um, what did you think of him as a player when you've seen him? I I, I I thought it was 
disappointing at Manchester United the second time. Mm. Obviously, at Juventus, he was a different player. Uh, with France, he was a different player. Yeah. Um, and other other managers and other clubs got got far better levels of performance out of him than uh, the Manchester United did. And you can count on the fingers of one hand games that you saw Paul Pogba play that were exceptional for Manchester United. Not so much the case with France, not so much the case with Juventus the first time. Mm. We'll wait and see what happens with that Paul Pogba situation. I'm sure it'll be a discussion point uh, as the season progresses. Uh, We're going to leave that there. We're going to be talking about Brighton and Manchester United in the next part of the show and also our favourite and least favourite statistics. Stick with us. Welcome back. You're listening to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. We're about to have our first weekend preview. That's right. Before Martin Samuel joined the Game Podcast this season, Gregor and I sat down, bit of a planning chat, and we said, so what do you want to talk about on Thursdays? And Martin said, I hate doing previews. <laughs> yeah. I bloody hate previews. Tom, yeah. don't bloody ask me about any Saturdays Because yeah. when I'm not on the radio, using my posh radio voice, I do talk like old man Steptoe, apparently. So, <laughs> Listen, my... my old? My, my Englishman, Irishman, Scotsman joke went down so well, I thought... Yeah, yeah, yeah you're doing impressions go, now. Yeah, it's quite a gap in the market well. with poor old Mike Yarwood going. <laughs> yeah, that's, what, that's what's happened. But... Fast forward to this morning, <laughs> and we're talking about the show. We're sort of looking at what we're going to plan, and Martin says, I won't do this bit in an accent. We've got to talk about Brighton-Manchester United. And I said, Martin, that's a game on Saturday. He's like, yeah, but it's a massive, massive game. So, Martin, over to you. And there might be one reason in particular why you want to talk about this game. Well, no, they're, well, they're, yes and no, there are. Um, I want to want to talk about it because it is a huge game. Um Brighton have beaten Manchester United. Uh, I think the last four consecutive matches they've played them. They go there. There's a shade of odds between the two teams, which is, is remarkable, really, um, considering the size of Brighton as a club, the size of Manchester United as a club, and the fact that it's Old Trafford. For it to just be a shade of odds with Manchester United, only slightly the favourites uh, to win. Um, Man you coming off the back of the Arsenal game, coming off the back of a couple of results that have gone for them that, that could have gone against them as well. Um, but also, I was down in Brighton this week and uh, interviewed Tony Bloom, who doesn't do many interviews, <laughs> um, or hardly any at all, in fact. And um, But we, we spoke for, for a while down at Brighton this week, a very interesting guy. And I think the Brighton story is, is just a fascinating one. And he is a very interesting Chairman, I know Tony. You, you know him, don't you? From, well, from I, he's very hard to get to, to know him. I, mm. I, you know, I've, I, I actually know. Um, I've got a mutual friend who knows him very well. Who's been an investor in Tony Bloom for oh, two decades, and um, he's always said the way he thinks. He, and I asked him one day and said, "What's Tony Bloom's biggest asset?" Because I knew him through the poker world anyway. And he said, "He's smart, as in he always employs smart people to work for him. And he knows if he can't do it." He'll employ a person who can. Yeah. And he's smart enough to understand that that logic. And I think he's shown that by the way the club's been set up, how it's run, whether it's been recruitment, whether it's been managers. You know, the infrastructure of Brighton has been extraordinarily well built over the years. And Tony Bloom is at the helm, um, and he is a very smart man. And, you know, he's a bit of a genius in sport anyway. It's not, you know, his favourite, or say his favourite sport, is horse racing. Yeah. He loves horse racing. He's one of the best judges on horse racing. There is. I know so many people in the poker world 
who know what Bloom was like within that his his favourite arena. Although he might say now, well, no, Brighton's my real love of my life. I'm I'm sure it is. But he's he has many interests in different sports as well. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, Martin's done an absolute top draw. Speaking to Tony Bloom because it's even at the card table, you're getting very little out of Tony Bloom. Mm-hmm. So Tony, he, t- he told me what his uh, his favourite bet was, his best bet ever, which I'm not going to reveal on here. <laughs> you know, you can uh, you can find it in the Times, but it's not a football bet and it's not a horse racing bet either. Um, the best bet he ever had, right. the one that he's well, proudest of. Make sure you check out the Times website. If you're listening on Thursday, it'll be on the Times website tomorrow. If you're listening on Friday, go check it out right now. Gregor, it is a huge week for Brighton, isn't it? They're uh, making their European debut against AEK Athens at home next Thursday, but also coming back to the weekend, make sure we do our previews properly. They go to Old Trafford as favourites? I think so, yeah. Yeah. We might just need uh, Sofian and uh, Amram Bat possibly uh, filling a hole that's been a big hole in their midfield, so that'll be interesting if he, if he, if he plays. Um, but Brighton just, you, you know, the last season or two it's always been on this show kind of oh we better speak about Brighton yeah, but yeah. now we're speaking about them all the time yeah. because they have advances and they're like a model club in, in the Premier League um, and they're going there with a striker in Evan Ferguson who you know have been heavily linked with Manchester United I'm sure they would love to have he would he would get in their team no doubt um, and now in England centre half in Lewis Dunk who played really well against Scotland um, and you know again have I've made light of losing a player like Moises Caicedo and and uh, filling those gaps. So they're just, you know, one of the best run clubs in uh, in the country. And as I've said many times on the show, I think the best value ticket in the Premier League because of the style of play and entertainment. Martin, would you agree with all that? Yeah, I, I, I would. I, I think they're they're a massively admirable uh, club, um, and. You, you have to take them seriously now. I, always, I was drawing the comparison, I think I was doing it the other week, drawing the comparison with Leicester. And um, not in terms of winning the league, because uh, it's going to be extraordinarily hard for a team like Brighton to win the league. But there came a point in the season that Leicester did end up winning the league where you had to take them seriously. And I'm, I'm talking about the press box, I'm talking about the chief football writers or whatever. And, and I think it was playing... Chelsea at home and it was just before Christmas and you could have gone the first yeah yeah and and you go in the first two or three months and you're thinking they'll come back they'll get they'll they'll, you know they'll fall back into it they'll fall back into it and it got to just before Christmas and there was this match against Chelsea and you're thinking I've got to go to Leicester because you know they might they might and at that time what you were thinking is they might just finish top four this season you know, yeah. they, they might. You weren't thinking, oh, they might win the league. You're thinking, well, I've got, we've got to go there because we've got to start taking them seriously because they could be a top four club. And then they beat Chelsea. And then by, I think it was February, and they play Liverpool and they beat Liverpool two nil, um, and that's at the King Power Stadium again. By then, you were most definitely taking them seriously as a as, as a top four club, potential top four club. And thinking, well, they could even be in the mix uh, of winning the league in the way that Norwich once were. People forget this; they they Second, actually went top yeah. in. Uh, they went top in April mm. um, in the season where they eventually came third. They actually went top for one weekend in April, and it was that same sort of thing. Well, let's say, oh, you've got to take them seriously. Brighton, even though they got beat three one by West Ham the other week, um, 
Brighton from the start of the season were taken seriously because everyone can see, I think, what a good club it is, how well run it is, how they bounce back from selling players. And it's one of the things that Tony talked about as well, about that, that balance between being a Brighton fan and, and then having to make the practical decision. One of the things that he talks about is the decision to sell Caicedo and how, if it had been up to him, he probably would have resisted even the hundred and five million pounds no, because because of what because of what he thought Brighton were capable of, and it was only the fact that the player was by then so desperate to go that you're thinking, well, we could turn down hundred and five yeah. million, and you haven't got the you haven't yeah. got the player you thought you had um, that persuaded him to do it. So he knows, he knows. I mean, this is a guy that's made you know Tony knows you know the poker scene and how competitive that is. Man's made, I think he's got career winnings of $3.8 million. Mm. Tony Bloom in poker. It's a good card. More or less yeah, than I'm, you. That is Tony, a good poker. Is it? Is it I, but mine's not bad either. <laughs> it's not as good as that. But I would, I'd add to that as well. And Tony hasn't been playing on the circuit for a long time. Long time, yeah, So yeah. you're not talking like, well, he's been regularly going. If you're on the circuit and you get, because you could go on the Hendon Mob, which is a site which gives you all the poker earnings. Mm. If you go on that site, it tells you um, exactly what you've earned. I've got some tournaments I've won that are in the Caribbean. They don't count in the Hendon Mob site because right. they're, they're a yeah. bit exclusive. Um, but um, to my point is that for him not to be on the scene for, I would say, at least 15 years, and with the earnings that are, you know the top players are getting now, Tony Bloom would have probably earned 20 million, 30 million. I mean, there's a kid, oh, there's a couple with over $50 million in earnings and that's only been in the, yeah. the last few years. So with that winning mentality then and thinking about all the things Gregor talked about on the pitch but also with the recruitment and with the manager recruitment as well I mean, Gregor, you alluded to it there the narrative around Brighton oh, we better talk about Brighton when they'd beaten Liverpool 3-1 <laughs> or whatever. Now we're talking about Brighton, main segment on the show Like, how, how far can they go? What's the reality here? With, with Tony Bloom at the helm? Um... And there are, I just want to add on one thing. The, the thing that's going to be the most interesting thing for me, because Martin mentioned Leicester. Now, Leicester, when they won the league, they won, and they're the first team I've ever seen do it, they won the league with two different styles in one season. They went toe-to-toe with everybody in the first part of the season. Mm-hmm. And it got to January, they had five one nil victories in the second part of the season, which was now we're stopping teams as well and they still had that threat of counter-attacking which I've not seen anyone do that now are Brighton at somewhere along the season going to have to compromise for their attacking flair and be a little bit because you know see I would argue that they already have that I would say that they, they, they do a lot of but the West Ham game was a strike I mean look they dominated their game yeah, no, they were sucker punch massively. Yeah, they the were sucker punch massively. But they, they almost have that too. Sometimes Lewis dunks on the ball, and you know we've seen it before. Now he stands yeah. on the ball, and they look to look to draw draw a player in, and and you know find the space, find a player moves. Billy Gilmore maybe moves into space, and they break the lines. They also play that direct arrow for Matoma mm. in behind. Yeah, and they already have they like have so many you know arrows in their bow, or whatever, and like. I'd say they already have different ways of beating teams. Do you so, think they're... Ca- OK, so my question too then, Gregor, is do you think they're a side that are capable of winning games 1-0? Yeah. Because that's what I mean, ultimately what Leicester did in the second part of the season. I, I know that's, that's the first thing. more games than five. No, I'm talking after January. After January. Was it the second part of the season. Yeah, I thought they went they, on this... They that, went on an incredible... Was it five on the turn they won? Well, the, I know I they won five from a January onwards where they went 1-0. I one think nil. it might even be five on the turn that they you won. Might, you might nil. be right, Mike. It no. was an incredible run, But do, they, do Brighton need to have that in the locker? 
to 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 go to keep rising. Well, to even keep, Champions League top, teams to, might... to finish top four, do they have to have that? Because Leicester was such a unique case; it felt yes. very one-off. And you know, part of that one-nil wins was because they'd got so high, and you kind of maybe well, goals were again. locking down. Whereas Brighton are outplaying teams. Yeah, Brighton are outplaying every other every team yeah. other than Man City in the league. Mm. Yeah, as it is today, and as it was for most of last season. But are they a team that are capable of a one-nil victory? Is to me, is that going to get them over the line to be a Champions League team? That would be my only mm. question. You're 100 percent right. And whatever you say about the way they play is is brilliant to watch, and they have they hurt the opposition. I get all of that, but that slight difference of being a Champions League team or even second or third in the table, you know, it sounds ridiculous to say, but, you know, win the league. I just think they'd have to have that in their armoury as well. Cue the 1-0 win at Old Trafford on Saturday then for a stubborn <laughs> and stoic Brighton, you never know. But ju- just concluding, uh, Martin, because obviously having spoken to Tony Bloom, with Europe, mm. uh, it was the same, it was the subject of James Gearbrandt's football newsletter talking about Aston Villa. Can they cope? Can mm. they keep the rise mm. going in the league under Unai Emery and cope with Europe? Can Brighton cope, if you like? Do you get that sense with Tony Bloom they that they're they going to they go, all, they go all out? Tony, Tony said to me that he thinks this, even losing Caicedo and McAllister, he thinks this current squad is the strongest squad they've had. Now, that remains to be that remains to be seen. There's a world of difference between replacing Caicedo for the first month of the season. Mm. You've got another seven or eight to go yet, and let's see, you know, how, how good that looks by the end of the campaign. But you know, there, there'll be there will be a lot of momentum behind Brighton in Europe. There'll be a lot of adrenaline uh, going into that club because they've never been in Europe before. There's not mm. not too many teams that you can say that of that have never been in Europe before, and they haven't. I mean. One of the funniest things down there was, um, uh, apart from the bit where the local television station said, "Could you?" When they were testing his microphone, I said, "Could you count for five? Could, could Tony? Could you count to five? He said, "I think I can manage that." <laughs> I thought it was quite nice, but the uh, <laughs> but was was you know his absolute um, disgust that the local BBC radio station weren't covering Brighton's match in Athens right. because. It's been they've got a knockback on the budget. They've got a knockback on the flight to go to Athens, and so Tony has got in his head how many matches they could potentially play this season if they get to the final of everything, which is like sixty-five. And he was saying to the guy, "But so what? You're gonna what? what what's your boast gonna be? We've seen sixty-four Brighton matches. We've been at all sixty-four Brighton matches this season. You know, apart from this one. You know, what's the point in that? And you could tell that there was a little bit of that sort of." smaller club frustration that they've yeah. got to the big time and they're not being treated as like Manchester United or Liverpool would because yep. BBC Manchester would never not go to Manchester United anyway, home and away or anywhere wherever it was so yeah I think there'll be a, a lot about them in, in, in Europe this season I think there'll be a momentum behind them An- anxious editor across the desk hurriedly checks that we are going to Athens to <laughs> <laughs> uh, Gregor go on I just think this week as well, you know, we mentioned that they're a smaller club and yeah, they're still not even necessarily getting a correspondence into the yeah. to their game first game in Europe. This will be a week where where it's where we'll be will be reminded of the journey they've been on as well. Yeah. And how remarkable this is, given that like fifteen, twenty years ago they were homeless. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, not even that, I think it was thirteen years ago they Yeah. Um, f- Tony's first they were job was to Gillingham. Try. Yeah. yeah. They played playing at Gillingham. Well, you know, the ground was basically taking the Goldston, playing mm-hmm. at Gillingham, playing at the West Dean. They didn't have a home, and then you know there's a huge campaign, huge fan action to kind of to to allow local government and and eventually national government mm. 
to get them a to get them a new home to to sign it off. And so there's a lot of I think there's a big feeling of ownership of the club among the fans there too. Like more as much as any any club really in the country, because they feel that they did a hell of a lot to get help get the club to this new stadium, which gave it a new you know a brighter future. And you know so on every level really Brighton are a club where there is a lot of harmony, and they know that it's going to be. It won't, this won't last forever. This trajectory, they might lose yeah. to Zerbi one day. They, what they do know is they have an intelligent, uh, you know, owner and sort of leadership group that will try and find someone else, and that they're, you know, they're they're very smartly run. Would be would would we be surprised if the result of the weekend after has has gone three one to Brighton, mm. Old Trafford? I wouldn't be surprised. No, I wouldn't either. No, no. absolutely. Not. Says it all, really, doesn't no, it? Yeah. The bookmakers wouldn't. Well, when I said a shade of odds, it's a shade of odds yeah. that favours Manchester United. Yeah. It's not Brighton that are favourites, but it's very, very close. Mm. It really is mm. very close between the two. The odds yeah. on the two on the game. Yeah, flipping the norms of football punditry on its head, then, Gregor. We should just mention Manchester United. <laughs> um, <laughs> <love it. laughs> but because for them, if as Tony says, Brighton do win three-one, are we starting to get? Do I dare say it? A little bit worried about Eric Ten Hag. I don't think so, not yet. But partly because of all the stuff swirling around at that club, still. Um, mm. Said that after the after the defeat last week as well. It just feels to me that no matter what he does, any work he does is still going to be undermined as long as they're owned, owned by the Glazers. Mm. And you know he's done a lot of good work. We saw that last season. They they made prog- you know greater progression. And bigger steps than we've seen in a long time, um, but I still feel like that club has got a, a big millsta- millstone around its neck, and it's and it's the owners of the club. Martin, would you agree? Yeah, I mean, look, a lot of Manchester United fans think I'd, I'd never have a good word to say about their their club, and, and yeah, they uh, get and because you're not on Twitter, they give me the abuse instead. But... Do they? Well, okay, <laughs> then so I'll change that. I thought I thought that was a really nice kit <laughs> against Arsenal. I really like that kit, the green and white yeah, stripes yeah, yeah. and the black shorts, and it's got this little thin red stripe in it, and it's like those great Brazilian tricolor. Yeah. Kits, you know, like Gremio, that's pale yeah. blue, white, and black, and I think Sao Paulo is like red, white, and black, and they're tricolour, and it's got that feeling to it. it. I mean, it doesn't look like Manchester United, but then neither do Manchester United <laughs> just, <laughs> because oh, uh, because they never came out of own half against Arsenal. Oh, so there dude, we go. So, no, no, just when you thought I was going. No, <laughs> look, look, I I was very very enthusiastic about Eric Ten Hag last season. I don't know what we're meant to be so enthusiastic about, about Manchester United's first four games this season, because they haven't been um, particularly good, I don't think. And the Arsenal performance that a lot of people were raving about, I'm sorry, I I didn't see it. I I couldn't see it. I really couldn't see it. Um, Arsenal looked the better team to me, uh, you know. And um, Manchester United made 100, I think we mentioned it last week, 199 passes in their own half, in the first half. And... We come in on the possession in a minute and, you know, possession's got to be somewhere that really matters, not just yeah. knocking it about in your own half. Yeah. And so I think this is a very big match from Manchester United's point of view because beating Brighton, ironically, would be quite a statement, whereas it used to be the other way around. If Brighton could beat Manchester yeah. United, what a statement that would be now. It's if Manchester United can beat Brighton, that's a big statement because Brighton are, are a club on the move at the moment. Um... But I haven't seen, I haven't had reason to be enthusiastic about Manchester United at, at, at this season so far. Last season was different. Mm. 
You're right, huge game. Thank God we previewed it, eh? Let's mm-hmm. say mm-hmm. absolutely you massive go. game. See, sure. previews are fine when it actually matters. <laughs> you see, just sitting there going, oh, Nottingham Forest are playing Burnley <laughs> in a match that many are calling on this Saturday. Uh, that's <laughs> not, you know... You're that's not allowed not to read out my unwritten, you know, scripts. <laughs> I told you. That's actually a Mitchell and Webb joke. Yeah, well. <laughs> anyway, but you, you team me up for the final segment of the show, which is not only about possession, but about our favourite stats and our worst stats. And it is inspired by an item in your column on Tuesday, Martin. Uh, with the paragraph, possession statistics are arguably the most misleading in football. Uh, and you conclude with the case in point, Sunderland versus Southampton, September 2nd. Possession, Sunderland 33%. Southampton, 67%. Goals, Sunderland 5, Southampton 0. It's where you have it that matters. Yes, well, it's yeah. true. It's, I mean, these guys have played. I mean, it, it, it's true. You're knocking it about in your own half to no apparent purpose. You can, you can have the greatest possession. Peter Schmeichel used to get absolutely... I think it was Schmeichel... I don't think it was Van der Sar. I think it was Peter Schmeichel. When those statistics came out about how far you'd run, they used to put them up in the, at the uh, uh, training ground Carrington. at Old Trafford. Yeah, yeah. Carrington. Um, and obviously, Peter Schmeichel, every single week, used to be bottom because he's the <laughs> goalkeeper. And even though it was perfectly explicable that he was yeah. the goalkeeper, so he would obviously be bottom, it used to drive him mad because he used to walk past it every single every single Monday and he's a proud guy and he used to look at it, Peter Schmeichel bottom. And there's a game where he spends the whole match virtually like dogging the uh, penalty <laughs> area or whatever, <laughs> so running, right. running left and right, so that when when you walk past it on the Monday, he was about halfway up the yeah. table, you know. Well, it, it, this Have never been bothered about running stats in your career? Um... <laughs> Not really, no. <laughs> I had to run. I wasn't that gifted to not be able to run. Um, one thing there's always... Look, there's, there's things with possession that get me drive me crazy. It's first of all, is the centre-arse when they pass to each other all the time. That one is... You know, when you see two centre-arse literally mm. going, from me to you to you to me, and all. Yeah. that always Careful. drives me Gregor used to do that for pass completion <laughs> stats all the time. Well, and, and, and the most... I think... When you look at possession, and if someone plays a ball with purpose to try and hurt the opposition, that's you know that's trying to make a difference in the game. Mm, mm. But if it's not, then you know Man City can be guilty of literally keeping the ball for fun, and you know you can sometimes you can go and make a cup of tea and they've still yeah, got absolutely. it and come back and absolutely. they've still got it. But they have purpose as well. You know they do. Yes. You know you can't they accuse. They would me. argue though that. Making those little passes sometimes it changes the picture. Well, yeah. Or, yeah. Or, or, or as Opposite. we've just talked about Brighton passing it between centre backs, and then until, until yeah. you go, fine, I'm going to mm. try and tackle you now because you're doing mm. my head. Well, Man United did it. You talk about the Arsenal game. That's mm. what they did. The Emirates, yeah. Yeah, 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 kept passing each other. Passing to each other yeah. You know, and it was. But Southampton well, are managed by Russell Martin, who has been plagued by this throughout yes, his career. He, has, he had yeah. MK Dons as well, where so, yeah. he, he kicked off once after being asked, you know, is it not time for a Plan B, Russell? And he's like. You know, he's devout. This is what he's going. This is the way he's going to play. And you're opening yourself to severe criticism when you lose five 0 but you yeah. still dominate possession. Or when you don't create chances, even exactly. That's, and you see that. Exactly. And you say you talk about MK Dons. You see it through the pyramid as well. Now you see teams where they they sit deep and they go, these lads are just going to pass it between themselves. We'll just wait and hit them on the counter attack, don't you? Yeah. Even mm. at League Two, yeah. League One level. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you, you see teams who are kind of pretending at it, really. To be honest. Mm. Um, I'm not saying Southampton are, are like that. They've, you know, they enjoyed a decent start to the season, and um, and there's sometimes you've watched this uh, Russell Martin's teams and thought, you know, they're scoring sweeping goals, brilliant mm-hmm. team moves. Mm-hmm. But then there's other times, yeah, where you feel like you're dozing off almost. It's so. very hard to get, 
you know, get a style where teams don't give away the ball. I mean, the, what the astonishing thing about, I know we started with England, but how England got out of the back the other night against Scotland, some mm. of the passing was unbelievable. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was thinking, you know, that was a higher level than it's ever been. I know new mm. goalkeeper Ramsdale come in for Pickford. The passing out of the back, Scotland literally were chasing because mm. they couldn't get it. No. You know, and it was all one town, flick around the corner, and everyone seemed to be in the right position. I thought well, that was extraordinary. Mm. But mm. that was affecting because England broke quick as well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. So it was different. If it's just passing and then you go in and out and come back, there are some teams that do that really poorly that I just find, yeah. just look at your goals numbers. Yeah. I've, thought of another, I've thought of another statistic. I think it was Phil Brown, uh, Phil Brown at a, a, a club, and there's a statistic, isn't there, about if... I think is it if six of your players run more than a certain distance in a game or yeah. whatever eight miles or something like that, you know, the statistically you don't get beat. Basically, if you've got six players in your team running more than yeah, X yeah. amount of miles, you won't lose that game. And a pal of mine who played under Phil Brown, he said, everyone hated, everyone in the team hated. He said. We spent weeks proving that bastard wrong. And that <laughs> <laughs> so he said we just ran everywhere. He said, you know, like for no purpose whatsoever. Yeah. Well, he said, and then got beat. Eight out of ten cats <laughs> prefer kitty cat. Yeah, there you okay. Go. There you go. Well, what about stats that annoy you then? One, the one that always gets me is clean sheets being attributed to meaning the best goalkeeper. Jan Oblak at Atletico Madrid. He yeah. used to get trotted out on social media all the time. Mm. This guy's goat level. He's got this many clean sheets. He plays for Atletico Madrid. Yeah, the exactly. The best defensively drilled team ever. He's a good shot stopper. Doesn't yeah. make him the best goalkeeper. Gregor? I was just reminded of a piece Johnny Noscroft wrote last year about assists, mm. which, again, I was nodding my head to. Because no assists are like now almost held up like, yeah. like goals. Yeah, like players. Some players talk about assists. Like a winger will talk about getting assists more than they will talk about getting mm. goals. Mm. And assists are so you know yeah, they random. do not they do not they're not valued the same at all. Mm. And the, the opening line in Johnny's piece I pulled up earlier was Hector Enrique has a favourite gag about Maradona's goal of the century against England in the 1986 World Cup with a pass like that. Enrique likes to say he could hardly miss and of course as we all know he gave him the ball with his back to goal in the, in the halfway line uh, yeah, and he yeah, twisted yeah. Trevor Stephen or whatever and ran through Maisie and scored mm. so you know assist look, if somebody has loads of assists then the chances are you yeah. know they're, they're doing well and they're creating a lot but of chances but it can be a five foot square you know, it can be foot, it can like, be it can even be yeah. it can even be now a shot that's saved yes so Billy, so Evan Ferguson's first goal against Newcastle yes. last week, for example. Billy Gilmore, rasping shot mm. from outside the box, straight, straight yeah. at Nick Pope. He fumbled it. Ferguson scored. That's an assist to Billy yeah. Gilmore. Yeah, you know, well, actually, it's a shot that should have been saved. Exactly. Yeah. And, so, and I would probably say on mine, passes completed, and when they do it in their own half, <laughs> sometimes I look at passes and I think, like I touched on without the two, I'll just give it to each other. Pass back. Pass completed. I mean, anybody could complete that pass. Absolutely, Martin. Yeah. Favorite stats? Worst favorite stats? stats? Well, Most all, annoying no, stats? No, well, I've, I've gone. I've, I've gone through a few of them, but again, it's all you know. All the statistical side of it is overrated. Alan Cork came in for Wimbledon once at half time, took his boots off, threw him in the corner, and and refused to go out and play the second half. Said that it's it. I'm I'm not playing. Howie Bassett was the manager. He's got, I'm not going out. And I said, put your boots on, get out. He said, no, you've got to tell them. He said, they keep passing to me feet, Howie. You know I'm no good <laughs> with my <me> feet. <laughs> <laughs> now, what are you meant to do on a 
possession stat with that. Exactly. You know, exactly. watch the ball in the air. You know I'm no good with my feet. Yeah, well, but... there you go. I'm sure <laughs> listeners would probably say lies, damn lies, and t- statistics. It's the game podcast. That's yeah, exactly. Yeah, there yeah, you go. Exactly. Well, but make sure... If you're going to a game this weekend, don't get too bogged down in statistics. Just remember what my <laughs> uncle once told me when I was fuming about the fact Lincoln had had all these shots but had still been beaten. He told me about Jerry, Jimmy Cyril, who famously yes. said, the best team always wins, the rest is just gossip. So yeah, remember that this weekend when you're ranting and raving. And we'll be back for more gossip on Monday. Uh, Gregor Robertson, Martin Samuel and Tony Cascarino, thank you very much. And thank you to you for listening. Make sure you subscribe to the Game Podcast by clicking that subscribe button. And make sure you subscribe to The Times as well to get all these guys' best journalism. If you go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game, you'll find our latest subscription offer. See you Monday.